This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Today's episode is one of the group of episodes in which I have some updates to make. The website stephenjtrigar.com no longer exists. So instead, every time I mention stephenjtrigar.com, know that you should go to alexandriamedia.org instead. I apologize for any confusion, but it is part of the process in transferring the Composer Chronicles over into my new company, Alexandria Media. So just remember, anytime that I use stephenjtrigar.com, just go to alexandriamedia.org instead. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hey there! I wanted to catch you at the top of the episode to let you know that my Patreon page is changing its name and URL. Rather than the page saying Stephen Trigar and the URL ending with Stephen J. Trigar, the page is fully transitioning over to the Composer Chronicles. All members of the Patreon page will continue to enjoy all the same benefits as before, including early access to ad-free versions of every episode, access to the Patreon podcast unscripted, and all other benefits one can find at higher levels. So, if you are listening to this episode and you hear me reference patreon.com slash stephenjtrigar, that is no longer a valid URL, as I have changed it over to patreon.com slash thecomposerchronicles. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you on my Patreon page. instruments that we can wield to our advantages. We are given access to them while we sleep, giving us glimpses of a life that could be while we recharge our physical bodies. While the dreams we have in our sleep can be a result of or influence our daily lives, we do not need to be asleep to be able to dream. Dreams are created by our own emotions, desires, and aspirations. Therefore, once we dream, we have already taken the first steps down that road made of yellow brick towards the destination we hold so closely to our hearts. Achille Claude Debussy, a French composer whose compositional career straddled the late Romantic era at the end of the 19th century and the more avant-garde 20th century, had a dream that one day he would create a piece of music as mysterious and cloudy as the life he contrived for himself. As secretive as he was in his private life, he was not shy to express his distaste for being considered to be a musical impressionist, a term used for artists who partook in the practice of depicting light and its changing qualities painted with delicate, thin brush strokes with an open composition on their canvases. Impressionism aimed to capture something. But WC was after a world where the one thing you want to see just simply cannot be seen, like a fleeting dream mere moments after waking up. Peleos et Melisande was WC's dream, a theatrical work that only hints at what is to be truly spoken in an undisclosed place outside the boundaries of time. Characters who seem to meet in their dreams and converse with one another while at the same time having separate conversations. Debussy's dream would take time to materialize, 
and he patiently waited for the right poet to bear his new muse. That muse would appear in the form of a new play by the Belgian playwright, poet, and essayist Maurice Maeterlinck on the evening of the play's premiere, May 17, 1893. At last, the destination could be seen in the distance, and Debussy could realize his theatrical aspirations. With the topic of his new opera in the forefront of his mind, Debussy knew that the next leg of the journey would be just as laborious as the one behind him. He would come out on top victorious, no matter the cost. Peleos et Melisande would take nearly a decade to complete and stage. This innovative new opera that blurred the lines of reality and fantasy would struggle to be a worthy work of art fit for the French stages. No matter how discouraging the events surrounding Peleos et Melisande would seem, Claude Debussy would never give up on making his dream a reality. This is the Composer Chronicles, and this is his story. Sometime after Maeterlinck published his symbolist play, Peleos et Melisande, in May of 1892, WC purchased a copy and fell in love with it. He would later note his admiration after the initial reading in his 1902 article, Pourquoi j'écris Peleos? Why I wrote Peleos. While he mentions that the reading initially struck him as a good subject for an opera, it was not until the play's premiere a year later that would ignite his fascination with setting the play as an opera. Debussy was enamored of Maeterlinck's enigmatic writing style, whose early naturalist style would quickly transform into a symbolist one, characterized by fatalism and mysticism. The composer would initially approach Maeterlinck to receive permission to set his play La Princesse Mélène, but Debussy was too late. Maeterlinck had already promised to play to another French composer, Vincent Dindy, who never completed his project. Even before his attempt to set La Princesse Mélène, Debussy toyed with several different opera projects, but nothing seemed to keep his attention. It wasn't until April 1890 that Debussy would grasp the idea of completing an opera more firmly. French poet Catulle Mendes had been searching for a fresh, young composer to set his libretto on the topic of the legend of El Cid. He eventually gave the project, titled Rodrigue Chemin, to Debussy, and although the young composer was unimpressed by the quality of the writing, he was excited by the prospect of writing for the prestigious Paris Opera. Around the time Debussy had accepted Mendes's project, his fascination with the works of German composer Richard Wagner, whose compositional style and philosophy about music and drama had shaken the very foundations of the musical world, had begun. Debussy was taken by Wagner's rich harmonic language 
which embodied everything that Debussy sought to accomplish in his own works. Wagner's evasion of the conservative major-minor harmonic practices confirmed to Debussy that his own attempt to avoid the traditional formalities was a possible feat. Furthermore, Debussy was initially attracted to Wagner's expedition of finding a way to attribute music to symbols, which Wagner coined the term leitmotif. The fundamental concept of the leitmotif planted the seeds for the symbolist movement decades later. So far, I have mentioned the term symbolism a few times without properly defining it. Initially a literary movement, later adapted for music, visual art, and other art forms, symbolism sought to look beyond what stood right in front of them and instead chose to explore the realms of emotion, imagination, and spirituality. The desire to peer through the veil separating everyday life and the more mysterious reality behind it and they would convey what they saw via ambiguous subject matter as if to hide the truth. In turn, they would compare their own works to the inexplicable realm of dreams. As Wagner's enthrallment over Debussy began to wane, his compositional style would begin to take its own shape. Debussy saw Wagner's self-importance bleeding into the notes and tainting the once glorious scores. In 1910, Debussy is noted writing to a friend that Wagner was a beautiful sunset mistaken for a sunrise. Although he denounced the influence of this German superstar, Debussy would not fully rid of it while he composed Pelias et Melisande. Occasionally, without realizing he had done it, he would write passages that were inherently Wagnerian, and Debussy would tear up the contaminated pages with intense animosity upon realizing what he had wrote. To help him find secure footing in his new style while writing Pelias, W.C. would take on several other commissions and projects. He would join social circles of symbolist literary and musical professionals and eventually befriend the predominantly symbolist French poet Stéphane Mellarmé, whose poem La Pré-Médie d'Enfant inspired W.C. to write what would become his most famous work, Prélude à La Pré-Médie d'Enfant also known as Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. This symphonic adaptation of Madame's poem has a rich history, and I will certainly be giving it its own episode down the road. For now, just know that Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn was musically a triumph for Debussy and his rapidly developing symbolist design. Almost immediately after attending the premiere of the play, Debussy abandoned Rodrigue et Chemin and claimed that he burned the manuscript out of resentment for the emotional struggle it put him through, which was untrue, as the manuscript was found and completed by musicologist Richard Langham Smith. Pelleas was exactly the libretto he was looking for, and so he would proceed with the necessary steps in order to secure the libretto for himself. In August of 1893, with the assistance of his friend, poet Henri de Regnier, Debussy met with Maeterlinck and began his work on writing the short score. It would take two years for the ambitious composer to finish the short score of Peleos. 
the full orchestrated score would not be prepared until it was needed for rehearsals at the Paris Opera Comique once they accepted the work in 1898. Several revisions to the score were made once submitted, but once rehearsals began in January of 1902, he would end his revisions until they became necessary due to conflicts with the scene changes. With his objective of producing a theatrical work with a libretto and score shrouded in dreamlike mystery finally obtained, it was only the beginning of a lengthy journey for him and his masterpiece filled with hardships and hostility. That will come after a message from today's sponsor. It's a brand new year, and you know what that means. It's time for us to reflect upon the past year and to set new goals. If you're someone who sets New Year's resolutions and never sticks to them, make this year a year you stick to those resolutions, especially if one of them is to live a healthier lifestyle. If you're like me, I spent so much of 2020 stuck inside my apartment. I couldn't go to the gym and most of the exercise I did was just walking around my neighborhood. What else could I do? I had no equipment, and at most I had a slight knowledge of minimal equipment exercising from my days in CrossFit, but even then those were a bit much. When I found Roy Belzer Fitness, that was when everything changed. Every weekday I wake up with an email in my inbox containing a new workout video, and I can do that workout whenever my busy schedule allows. Better yet, in these videos, Roy does the workouts with us, so his words of encouragement mean all the more to me who is sweating up a storm. But Roy Belser Fitness isn't just a daily workout routine. It's a community, a shoulder to lean on, and a body-positive space where all are welcome and are free from judgment. Via a private Facebook community, Every student gets to share their own journeys and encourage others to keep going. We all get to engage with each other every day, sharing sweaty selfies after workouts, nutrition tips and recipes, and posts that keep us accountable for one another. When you sign up for Roy's class, you not only get to join this incredible group of people to keep you accountable, you also get a free nutrition guide and the opportunity to win incredible prizes like free memberships and cash prizes. You can get back on your weight loss and fitness journeys right now when you sign up for Roy Belzer Fitness. Just go to RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up or click on the link in the show notes and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout to get 10% off your first month of classes. Again, that's RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your first month. This new year, let's stick to our New Year's resolutions together. Join me and a wonderful community of like-minded individuals living healthier lifestyles in a body-positive space with Roy Belzer Fitness.
Debussy would come to realize that such an ambitious and innovative work would face a dilemma finding a home. Promises by friends to stage the opera immediately fell through, and each time Debussy would have to pick up the pieces and try again. In the meantime, he rejected all permission requests to present excerpts in concert form, stating that the opera's music demanded its scenic counterpart. Finally, in 1898, the Opera Comique received a new conductor, André Massager, who was a devoted admirer of Debussy's work. Messager recommended to the head of the opera house, Albert Carré, that they visit Debussy to hear Terras et Melisande performed on the piano in two separate sessions. Convinced that the opera would be a strong choice for the Opera Comique, whose rules of only being allowed to perform works with spoken dialogue being recently lifted from the law, Carré accepted the work and presented Debussy with a written promise in 1901 to have the opera performed the following season. Now began the task of casting the opera. Maeterlinck requested that the role of Melisande go to his longtime partner, Georgette Leblanc. The playwright had Debussy come to play the score for him and Leblanc. She recalled that at the beginning of the read-through, she found the score to be ugly and dull. But by the end, she was so enraptured by it that she begged to have the part. She and Matterlink recalled Debussy being delighted to have her, but that was where the true drama began. Debussy privately detested her voice, and Carré deemed her a persona non grata after her atrocious performance as Carmen. Instead, Carré suggested the Scottish singer Mary Garden to take on the role of Melisande, who had won over the hearts of the Parisian public with her performance of Gustave Charpentier's Louise a few years prior. Although he was initially hesitant, Debussy would eventually think of no better singer to present his timid and aloof princess to life. The announcement of Garden being cast as Melisande in Debussy's adventurous new opera was announced in the press at the end of December in 1901, and Maeterlinck would be blindsided by the news. Feeling betrayed and incensed, Maeterlinck reported Debussy to the Society of Authors but the case was thrown out because Matterlink had signed an agreement that gave Debussy precedence over the decisions of casting and the final shape of Loretto. Enraged by the outcome of his case, the playwright stormed into Debussy's flat, brandishing a sword and demanding that they duel. Debussy's wife intervened and calmed the infuriated Matterlink, while Debussy remained seated and steady. Both made it out unharmed. Matterlink was still out for vengeance. Playing the unaware fool, he published a letter that appeared in the newspaper Le Figol, claiming to be excluded from the decisions pertaining his own work, denouncing all the cuts Debussy made to craft his libretto and expressing his wishes that the opera would fail and expose Debussy as a hack.
Starting in January of 1902, rehearsals for Pelias and Melisandre began and lasted for 15 weeks. Debussy would attend most of them and slowly became aware of problems with the casting and staging. The part of the young Inyold was chosen late and they were incapable of singing the part. The major scene for Inyold in the middle of Act 4 was cut for the premiere, only to be reinstated in later performances when the role was given to a more experienced female singer. His difficult score would have Debussy interjecting at rehearsals to encourage singers to forget that they were singers and to capture the elusive nature of the music and the plot in their voices. Casting and singing were not the only problems faced in the long weeks of rehearsals. The score did not provide enough time for scene changes to be made by the Opera Comique's stage machinery, so Debussy was forced to rapidly compose orchestral interludes to allow more time for them. In these moments, Debussy's evasion of Wagner's influence failed, but there was no time to revise his Wagnerian interludes. At the dress rehearsal on April 28th, when all had seemed clear, it was the audience's turn to outlandishly make fun of the opera. Someone, according to Mary Garden, distributed a salacious parody of Debussy's final libretto, and they would burst out into laughter at Ignol's repeated phrase, Petit Pierre, meaning little father, a scene that Debussy claimed to give him nightmares rather than fits of laughter. They also found humor in Garden's Scottish accent. It caused her to pronounce words incorrectly and occasionally sound as if she had said a different word altogether. At the end, the censor Henri Eugène approached Debussy about making several cuts before the premiere, specifically referring to Inyol's scandalous reference to Pelias and Melisande being near her bed. The composer agreed to make the changes for the premiere, but left the libretto unaltered when he would bring it to his publishers. Following the trajectory of the rehearsals and the Cerulean letter of Maeterlinck, Debussy and everybody else involved with the opera braced themselves for a riotous premiere. However, that premiere on April 30th of 1902 received a warmer reception than they had anticipated. Critical reception was mixed and would remain divided for a while afterwards. The older generation primarily found the music to be lifeless while younger composers, students, and musicians expressed their enthusiasm for the work and created a cultish following over it. The more performances of the opera were given, the more entranced the audiences, critics, composers, and writers became. By 1913, 11 years after its premiere, the Opera Comique had reached its 100th performance of Pelias, and it was already regarded as one of the most important works to ever be composed. Maeterlinck would eventually attend a performance of the opera in 1920, two years after the composer's untimely death. He would eventually confess that it was he who was wrong, and that Debussy was right from the start. While adversity lurked around every corner while writing Palais Melisande, Debussy never gave up on his dream. He did whatever it took to realize it, and nobody, not even Maeterlinck, could get in his way. Aside from all I have mentioned thus far, Debussy did face several other complications in his personal life while writing and revising the opera. He led a string of affairs and left a trail of broken hearts along the way before agreeing to marry Marie-Rosalie Texier, also known as Lily, 
after she threatened to kill herself if Debussy refused to marry her, much like Antonina Melyakova did to Tchaikovsky, as I mentioned in episode 1. Today, Peleas Melisande remains one of the most respected works and its influence stretches beyond the operatic genre. Today's musicians, composers, and scholars praise its innovative techniques and try to decipher the mysteries that both Maeterlinck and Debussy embedded into their versions of the work. Mysteries that can only be seen if you take the time to look past what's right in front of you and into the realm beyond. This episode of The Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and produced by me, Stephen J. Trigar, with additional research by Rebecca Roman. Links to the music and sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on stephenjtrigar.com. You can follow The Composer Chronicles on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cron Podcast. That's C-H-R-O-N Podcast. Also, you can become a member of the podcast on Patreon. There you will get ad-free episodes of the podcast and member-only articles that expand on the topics discussed in each episode. Click on the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash Stephen J. Trigar. I also invite you to purchase a copy of my book, Beyond the Doorway, the operas of Claude Debussy, Paul Ducat, and Marie Sauvel. To learn more about Debussy's career as an opera composer, the plot behind Pédias Mérisande, and for some musical moments to listen for. To purchase a copy, just go to stephenjtrigar.com slash books. Next time, you will hear about a crazed Hector Pelios, who writes his symphony fantastique while lusting after a woman and embedding his twisted fantasy into his work. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.